0: Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom's here. McCoy's on the phone. Hey, Justin.
1: Hey, good morning. Thank y'all for having
0: me. McCoy's on the phone because he's going to mold young minds this morning in a few minutes. I keep saying good morning. I guess we've done most all of these in the morning lately, haven't we,
2: Tom? We have, in fact.
0: That's a really that. good point.
2: Not many in the afternoon. While I mean, it's that time of the year where most things get done in the morning so that we can have the rest of the daylight hours. I guess that's
0: a good habit to get into. Or doing it at the same time, I guess maybe it's a good habit to get into. I
1: had my coffee. I'm ready to go in the morning.
0: Did you have dropped kids off this morning?
1: I did not. No, I left them with the wife.
0: So Justin's got two boys that are basically twins but not twins. Yeah. Were they like 19 months apart? Is that what you told me? 14. 14. So
1: we, we even uh, we made the trip to the football game this weekend. You can imagine how that went.
2: <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a circus, only uh, not did, really. Did
0: you make it out of the first quarter?
1: Uh, we made it almost to halftime. Okay. I was impressed. <laughs> uh,
0: well, at least it wasn't in the afternoon.
1: That's right. Yeah. The people around us probably were not as impressed, but we did make it to halftime. <laughs>
0: So, did you have earmuffs on for the cowbells?
1: We did have earmuffs. You know, that was half the battle with trying to keep those on. Mom was very concerned.
0: Through the television, I found it exceptionally loud.
1: (laughs) Well, it wasn't wasn't a whole lot to hear about in the first half, I will say. After the kickoff, you know, they kind of, they could take their earmuffs off.
0: So, they can ring the cowbells anytime they want to for a non-SEC game. Is that still an enforced rule or did I just imagine that?
1: well yeah it's a little it's a little more lenient but i think you're supposed to technically stop for the before the snap but you know how that goes
0: (laughs) yeah law and order man law and order everybody follows the rules right yeah all right justin so two boys i know i'm fixated on that i keep asking these questions related to your to your boys but so two of them at home what's the favorite cartoon character the
1: favorite cartoon character? We're just getting into that. We're a uh, big puppy dog pal, Rolly and Bingo, right now. He likes that. So. Okay. We're not. We're not quite to Paw Patrol yet, but I think we we'll get there.
0: If would asked me that, I would have said Peppa. Yeah. Four-year-old little girl.
1: He does like. He likes Mickey. He knows. He knows who Mickey is pretty good. He likes him. Uh, but he can watch those dogs around on the TV. I don't know if he knows what's going on, but he enjoys that.
0: Cocoa Melon's not bad. It's
1: a tough watch for me, I'm going to be honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hypnotizing. Yeah, yeah. You find yourself you know, 10 minutes has gone by and you're just staring at it.
1: He watches it, but man, it's a tough go for me. <laughs> I, I like finding find a good movie and i can you know then i
2: probably watch it more than he does. hilarious i'm just sitting here thinking about how many of these have changed ever since my kids were youngins what would have you been been y'all's favorite time boy i don't know we, we watched a lot of backyard when claire was really young backyard agains was great loved it thought it was extremely imaginative yeah, yeah. i don't know about that one. see and that's funny i mean that's that's the whole generational difference Backyardigans was big. I don't remember some of the other things. And then then Claire got into the Door of the Explorer, and I kind of had to excuse myself from the room when that was on because that just grated on my ever loving last nerve. Yeah, <laughs> it's door, just not a good show. Door's
0: still around. Yeah, eh.
2: Not very explorative. That's just <laughs> that's my Thursday morning grumpy comment.
0: <laughs> Justin was planning on being here this morning, and he actually is hosting a class. This morning, in a few minutes, at the station in Verona. So, we got him on the phone to talk about fall fertilization. So, I've seen some, a few tenders running around, Justin, and then for sure a bunch of field work going on behind the corn harvest and the, and now the soybean harvest and getting some rice ground worked up too. I've seen some, some rice fields worked up. So, the time of year where a lot of that stuff's going on, soil sampling, soil testing. And then on into the fall fertilizer application. So, why don't you just give folks kind of an idea of what your philosophy is on soil sampling and fall fertility?
1: Yeah, well, that's a broad range. This is, uh, but this is my time of year, so we're excited about it. I know fertilizer prices could be a little bit better this year. I could really get everybody out there to fertilize, but the. Uh, the biggest thing is, and I'm always going to say it, is soil sample. You know, soil sample and know what's out there. It's a relatively inexpensive cost. You may not have to do it every year, but, but unless you're taking good soil samples, then you're really not going to know exactly what's in that soil itself. And, and we can talk about maintenance rates a little bit later, which is essentially when I say a maintenance rate, I mean, you know, maybe you didn't take a soil sample that year. You think you have good fertility, but you're trying to put back what you carried out of that field this year. The biggest thing right now, that you know, the first thing we're going to do on most farms is soil samples. So when it comes to soil sampling, you know, there's multiple different techniques from a grid sample to a random sample. Um, I get those those questions a lot. So a lot of guys will have someone, you know, a third party come in and take their soil samples. Um, most of those guys offer a grid sample and can take it back and put it in a program. Um, and then they may be able to variable rate off of that. So if you are gonna be able to variable rate, grid sample is certainly the way to go. You need to do that in order to really go out there and extrapolate those in between so that a, a good variable rate prescription can be can be drawn up. However, the thing to that is some guys wanna do it themselves and that's perfectly fine. And you can grid sample yourself. There are some phone apps out there, you know, that you can you can buy. The problem with that is once you send those soil samples off, you've got to assign value to that. Um, and you've got to be fairly technological in order to do that. It can be done, but you've got to have the right programs, et cetera. So what I tell guys is, you know, a random sample, if you know your farm, especially, you know, guys on smaller acres, smaller fields, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a random sample, especially if you don't plan to variable rate those fertilizer applications. Uh, and what I mean by random sample is you know your fields, you know your high spots, your low spots, you know, where you may have, soil changes, um, you can go out there and take random samples and get a very accurate picture of that field itself. So what I would suggest to that is, you know, don't don't take a 100-acre field, take one sample out in the middle of it and, and call it good. You know, you take a few out of there, like I said, you may know your changes in there and you ran a sample, and you can put those together and get a very accurate, accurate picture of that field and, and get a good plan together with doing that. Going back to that, with grid sampling or random sampling, the more samples you take, the more accurate and precise that picture is going to be so what i mean by that is normally on a grid sample you may do 10 acre grid five acre grid and that's kind of a common thing out there um, but if you think about that is the more samples you take you'll be able to look at that on a five-acre basis or a 10-acre basis. And you can bring that all the way down to, you know, if you set a one-acre, which I realize is not really cost-effective. But if you've got a field that's had issues, you know, maybe you've been doing a 10-acre grid, maybe you bring that down one year to a five-acre grid. You can really pinpoint those areas to know exactly where I'm having these problems and figure out, you know, and be able to address that. And the other thing that I'll say with soil sampling, the biggest things that I see and one of the things we really need to take, pay attention to is, is soil sample depth. It depends on where you're taking your soil sample. So whenever you send a soil sample off, they'll take that sample and they will analyze it for nutrients. But they're taking a very small sample and then they extrapolate it out to an acre basis to give you a recommendation. Well, the way they do that is they have a, they have a computer program, an algorithm that's based on, on a depth. So if you go out there and you stick your probe two inches in the ground and, you know, their program is set up for six inches, you're not going to have an accurate picture of what you have out there in the field. Same goes for if you're sticking it 10 inches in the ground, right? So Mississippi State recommends four to six inch depth, some are six, some are four. Uh, so it's just one thing to check on and make sure you're trying to go to that depth every time so you can get the most accurate picture of that. That way those calibrations are as, as close as they can be to that accurate depth. So those are kind of the main things, the easiest things I see on soil sampling. So soil sample, get out there, but using those proper techniques are going to make a big difference as to what you get out of your soil sample. So I know that was kind of a long spill. But I am, um, you know, there's a lot of questions I get every year on soil sampling and using those techniques and, and using some of those things are kind of the the mainstay and the and the base of having a good fertility program. You know, these are all going to affect you know your economic costs and, and your returns you get on this fall fertilizer application.
0: No, that's awesome, dude. That was uh, actually most of the questions I had related to sampling.
2: I, I do have one more, but Tom I think was about to say something too, so. I was just going to say, I think that's really pertinent and super important information to talk about that depth of sample, because that's that's exactly what those algorithms are based on. But what I was going to say, Justin, is do, do you get a feel for what really are the specific nutrients that people are asking about this time of the year?
1: So this time of year, I mean, we're going to focus on, on your on your macros. P and K are, are the biggest ones we get. Magnesium and sulfur, I'd say, would be the, the second two biggest questions we get. I've talked about it before on here, but sulfur, we're, we see it more and more every year. Um, and we're going to continue. With the Clean Air Act, I mean, we just do not get the free sulfur that we used to anymore. It's going to continue to show up. As I'll talk about, you know, and I've talked about before, as we continue to push yields, we remove more nutrients out of our soils every single year. In this part of the country, we've moved to a lot more grains than we used to. Our grain just by the way it is, it, you know, it, it removes a lot more nutrients than, say, a cotton crop did um, back 50 years ago. So those kind of play into it. But, yeah, the, you know, the most questions we're going to get are P and K. That's what we're going to be able to address. Obviously, your microbes, you want to be able to look into that. I will caution that sulfur is a is a tricky nutrient in the fact that it is so mobile in the soil. With that, you know, one, we need to watch what sources we use this time of year. And two, you know, sometimes on a soil test, we have a somewhat difficult time. It's not as, it's not as precise as it is in say P and K with these soil tests. So it's something you just need to keep in mind. If you have, if you have a crop that really requires a high amount of sulfur, uh, like cotton, we know does corn as well and, and really soybeans too, but it's just something to keep in mind that you could have, you know, it could come back. It could come back as you know medium to high levels, but it's just something to keep in mind. It's to, it's to look at those levels, and sulfur is one of those. Keep an eye on. Maybe if you are tissue sampling, use that in conjunction with visual, just out there to to watch that and make sure we don't run into an issue.
0: Related to that, Justin, comment on timing of soil sample collection and the way the results can fluctuate based on the the time, soil moisture, things like that?
1: We take most of them in the fall of the year, which is a good time to do it. I will say in the springtime, you know, soil moisture is going to be different, temperature is going to be different. So some of those things may react a little bit differently. So, you know, if you take a soil sample in the spring to the fall, you may have some different different levels may come back, simply mostly due to the fact of, of how that reacts, how it's been, exposed to you know oxygen soil moisture things of that nature the big thing is to try to do it same time every year is what we're going to recommend what I recommend that's going to give you the best picture of of what's happening out there with your soil and and try to do it you know you don't want to do it extremely dry for one it's, it's hard to get a sample when it's extremely dry and you don't want to do it you know, when it's saturated either, you're going to get different readings from that. And and also, you know, how do you handle those samples afterwards? They need to be, you know, once you send them off, they'll be put in an oven and dried. You know, we're able to do that here. But if you take a really wet sample and you go stick it in a bag and then it rides around on the back of the truck for a couple of days, you can have some changes in there from when you took that sample that you really don't want to see. And so that's the main thing to be aware of with that. And so really, that's just time of you probably recommend in the fall it's really the, the easiest time to soil sample for one uh, we have better conditions as far as soil moisture goes and it's a time of year we can get out there and do that more readily.
0: Justin when I was at LSU in school my first job down there was working in the soil testing lab so I'm like first semester freshman saw so I'm at you know bottom of the heap right so I'm in this in the grinding room And I always loved those samples that people would would send in, and they were wet, and then we dried them. And then you just had this brick. So we had the regular soil grinder, and then we had a a different grinder that I don't know why they called it this. They called it the chipmunk. It was for the samples that came in like a brick, and you you just throw them in there. That thing, would just beat them around like a, I guess like a mill and uh, then you'd get it down to, like, marble-sized pieces that you could feed into the regular soil samples. I I always always think about that every time y'all talk about, you know, wet soil samples and and dry soil samples, the range of stuff I used to see come through the grinding room at the LSU soil testing lab. Yeah,
1: did not know you were so (laughs) well-traveled in the soil fertility
0: world. Oh, yeah, man. I got got background. (laughs) We got our soil tests results back and now let's move in to talk about the the actual application so you mentioned maintenance rates when we first started so talk about maintenance rate versus what do y'all call the building when you want to build the fertility what do you call that
1: building your fertility up um i, I don't know if i have a specific word for it okay maybe bobby might have back in the day he liked to add some things in there. But, no, so when you get a soil sample back, you know, wherever you send it off to, whether Mississippi State or a private lab, any of those labs are going to have a, a recommendation that comes with that. Uh, that recommendation is, like we talked about, an algorithm. It's going to be based off of a few different things, you know, your, soil te- your CEC of your soil, not necessarily texture, but the organic matter content. So it's going to change, you know, based on those things, and it's going to be, you know, really the best way that we have today to be able to, to actually get a shift in a movement in the amount of available P and K or whatever nutrient it may stay in there. The number one thing I'm going to say with that is check your pH. Get your pH right before you do anything else because you can add all the P, K, micros that you want to out there, but if you don't have a proper pH, it's not going to be available for that plant. So then the second thing is, you know, follow that rate to the best that you can. I know that that's a, that's a thing that producers have to look at and deal with, but that rate that they're going to suggest is, you know, whatever you put in there, corn, soybean, cotton, it's going to be tailored to that for next year if you have a, a variety of it. That recommended rate is going to be what, based on our research and all the research done for the past 100 years on, on what we can do, you know, how much needs to be out there in order for enough to be available for that that crop in the second year. So if you're soil sampling, you know, that, that makes you that makes it easy, right? That tells you exactly, hey, this is what you need for the crop the next year and this is what you need to put out there. It should tell you an exact rate. Um, if it doesn't, call them and they should be able to get that to you on your form itself. So the other side of that is, you know, maybe you're on a, a rotation of what you're soil sampling every year. Maybe you just didn't get a chance to put soil samples out there and so, You know, you want to put back what you took out of the field this year with your grains. And so, you know, what I would refer to that as a maintenance rate. We do a lot of that, and and that's perfectly fine. You know, we want to be able to at least put back into that soil what we're taking out every year. Um, I would love to build those soils up for years where you may not be able to fertilize. And I show, if you've ever seen some of these talks, but we show, you know, the removal the use rate in the United States is, is staggering the amount that we remove every year and fail to put back. It's, it, it really is unbelievable. It's in the millions of tons of, of all these nutrients that we're taking out of our soils and failing to put back every year. Um, but with that maintenance rate, and, and this is where, you know, I think the biggest thing is, I guess, historically a maintenance rate when most guys call me, you're going to you know, put out about 60 pounds of P and, and 50 pounds of K, somewhere in that range just because you're running 100 pounds of product of triple super and potash, right? Um, And I'd say that that's kind of what where a lot of guys sit. One thing to think about is what's in a bushel? What are you really carrying out of that field every year? That's what a maintenance rate is. That's what you're trying to put back out there. So in a 210-bushel corn crop, and and I'd say this year, you know, I've heard some really good corn crops. So I think that's going to be, you know, a lot of guys. We're going to have less than that, but a 210-bushel corn crop, you're removing 74 pounds of P and 53 pounds of K out of that soil. You're also removing 17 pounds of sulfur all out of that soil. So that's one thing to keep in mind. That's that's a that's a fairly large amount of sulfur there. So with that, you know, as we've historically increased these yields, we need to think about increasing those maintenance rates. You know, if you had a 230 bushel corn crop putting out 46 pounds of pea and 60 pounds of K probably is not going to cut it as far as are you maintaining what you took off that field last year. Um, then we look at soybeans. You know, I'll, take, I'll say an 80-bushel soybean crop, which is a fairly high soybean crop, but, you know, you're looking at 60 pounds of pea and almost 100 pounds of K uh, removed out of that soil a year. And that's not, you know, that's not a number that you don't see anymore. Even with 60-bushel soybean crop, you know, you're talking about 75 pounds of K being removed off of that. So with that, what I what I'll recommend, you know, let's bulk that up. Let's try and get in the range of, you know, 80 to 100 pounds of actual K going out there. So that's, you know, 130 to 150 pounds of potash. And then with phosphorus, I think we need to be in the range of, of you know, 80 to, to 100 as well to, to be on the safe side of things. You know, you're talking about 150 to 170 pounds of uh, triple super out there. So those are the things. That's you know quite a bit more than I think we've historically discussed. But as we continue to increase these yields, as we you know do what you would call a maintenance rate, we need to consider that hey, I'm, I'm taking a lot more out of this field than I once was. You know, I'm hauling it off to the truck and selling it to the elevator, and I'm I'm selling those nutrients with that grain. That's some of the things that we need to consider with a with a maintenance rate, right? And so that's where just consider that on your farm. You know, kind of think about where are my yields compared to that and, and, you know, how they've been historically and maybe I need to think about increasing these maintenance rates.
2: You said something a minute ago, Justin, and I just wanted to really touch on that again and and ask because the questions that I get from a pathology standpoint, you've touched on things that are really in a careful balance regardless of whatever grain crop you're talking about. But could you stress how important pH is?
1: If you don't have your pH, where it needs to be you could have you could have a soil test that comes back a thousand parts per million p205 and, and it's not going to be available to that plant it does not matter what you put out there as far as pk micro macro if you do not have a proper ph the root system is not gonna it's not going to grow effectively for so one and, and two you know that that basically is the Is the hydrogen, you know, hydroxide ratio in your soil, and that affects, you know, chemically how all of these nutrients react in the soil. So when we talk about mobile versus immobile, phosphorus being immobile, potassium is fairly immobile. But but, you know, so basically, what that means is they don't move uh, with water solution, right? So nitrogen will move with your water, Uh, but but phosphorus and potassium, it basically has to do with your CC cation exchange capacity. That's one thing you're going to get back, but. But those essentially have to be transported through chemical reactions and not only converted to a plant available form, them, but then they have to be transported, you know, towards that plant via that gradient. If you don't have the proper pH out there, they're going to be wrapped up by those free ions, essentially, that are out there, and they're not going to be available for your plant to take up and use properly.
2: I can just recall a couple of questions this year whereby I got photos and somebody said, you know, this looks like the problem, and I said, well... What's their pH running? Because that plant just does not look right. And they came back and said, "Yeah, it's way out of whack." And I said, "Well, you you can put out all the nutrients you want. That plant's not going to be able to use it if you don't have that pH in line because it's a that's a pretty careful balance." And I don't think that's something we talk about. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of high school chemistry that brings back some serious nightmares in my head. That, that was not one of my favorite classes.
1: It's not a fun thing to talk about, but but you know we we have a range in there. And we know those ranges, and that'll come back on your soil test report. And, and the only way that I, you know, that I really know to get an accurate reading is a soil sample itself. You know, There's pH meters out there, but to get an accurate and, and good measure of your pH, you, know, you need to take a soil sample.
0: Justin, what are your feelings on timing, fall versus spring, timing related to soil texture?
1: The biggest thing soil texture-wise is, is on your sandier soils, you're going to have more mechanisms for loss just because of, of leaching etc um, p and k they do a pretty good job of sticking around for the most part if you've got some super sandy soils you know you may want to consider more moving more to a springtime application but the fall is really the best time to address those p and k on most soils that we have here in the city i know that we have some extremely sandy areas but but most soils we have and especially you know your your heavier clay textured soils you really want to get out there in the fall so that they can begin to break down and and get into that system and be available for your plant the next year. The biggest one that I would to consider is sulfur in that. Sulfur is, is very mobile, so it moves with water a lot like nitrogen does. So on your fine textured soils, you know, your silt loams to your sand, sulfur may be one that you want to dress more in the springtime. An alternative to that is if you can get elemental sulfur, you know, not in the sulfate form. Elemental sulfur has to break down. It will stick around a little bit longer, so it's a good fall alternative. It's good to use in the fall. Elemental sulfur you cannot use in the springtime. It's got a couple-month breakdown period, and it's not going to be available for that plant in the springtime. So in that case, you need to go with a sulfate source, ammonium sulfate, potassium sulfate. So soil texture certainly matters in your timing. If you've got a super sandy soil, you may want to more consider... You know, on that springtime timing, and even all your heavier textured soils, you can still affect that in the springtime with applications. But a fall application, you have a little bit more of a window, you're probably going to be out there doing field work, you know, and that PK is going to stick around on your heavier textured soils. And, and, you know, I'd even recommend, you know, I don't have a problem getting sulfur out there on your tech on your little bit heavier textured soils. You know, even with a sulfate source, if you can get enough out there, say you can get some potassium sulfate, you're getting that potassium with that sulfate you can run that to the 20 to 30 pound range you you can still you know have an effect on the coming year Uh, another thing to consider is on the heavier soils over here in the black prairie we see a lot of magnesium so that's a good one to get out there in the fall one thing to consider we have some magnesium problems here and on super sandy soils you may see that as well but yeah the biggest timing thing is just consider you know on your sandy soils be aware that you can have you're going to have more leaching and loss throughout the year. Whereas these, if you've got a little bit more clay, you've got a higher CEC, maybe some more organic matter, you're going to be able to hold those nutrients around a little bit longer. In uh, the fall is certainly the best time to, to get out there on those soils, as they're hard to get into in the springtime.
0: And I know you got to go because you have another commitment, but I got one more quick question. So commodity prices are high, but input prices are high as well, and that's across the board fertility pesticides fuel everything's high right now so sell me on a fall fertility program say i'm in a soybean and corn rotation and i'm hesitant to do it because of the input prices right now
1: base fertility program from all the research we've done all the research i've seen you know if you don't have the proper fertility out there you can have the best weed program the you can make take care of diseases. You can do everything else right. Get the best feed. You know, be running the best planters and tractors. But if you don't have that base fertility, you'll never reach those yield levels that you really want to. It's one of those things that you've got to have that fertility out there. We talked about the barrel save last time I was here. But if you have, if you're deficient in K, you can do everything else right, but you're never going to make up for that K deficiency out there. You know, so make sure that you run a good base fertility program. You've got. Good soil fertility. You've got good pH. That'll take care of a lot of those in-season pests. You know that'll take care of insect pressure. Will be secondary to that. Weeds will be secondary. You know, especially diseases. Diseases are one of the main things that follows fertility. I know Tom can speak to that, but if you don't have the proper fertility, you're much more likely to have those in-season diseases show up um, and really run into issues there. And and you talk about costing you money. That can all do that very quickly. So I hope it's not a super hard sell. I know that it's expensive, but that base fertility program is going, to be, is going to be the basis for every crop that, that you put in the ground and grow. You know, I know we talk talked about a crop's highest yield potential is when you put that seed in the ground, and it is, but its high yield potential is, is also, you know, when you put that seed in the ground, it's got to have the maximum fertility there, right? Uh, it, it's got to be able, it's got to be, got to have plant available nutrients uh, for it to grow properly and for everything else to follow.
2: Thanks for your time this morning, Justin. I, I think that's a really, really, really important topic that a lot of times we do not spend an awful lot of time talking about. And, and it's one of those things, it's, it's like I deal with, people glaze over when you start talking about some of those high school topics that they don't necessarily love. Uh, and I can remember my high school chemistry teacher just you know sends shivers down my spines. It wasn't, wasn't exactly a really good class that, that I enjoyed. But you know, to our regular listeners, we definitely appreciate the comments that continue to roll through. This is something we really enjoy doing, and we definitely think we're bringing some good content. And I'm sure there's some, some more that we can bring here over the next few months, definitely in the winter months. That's something that um, we'll work on uh, bringing to y'all. And, and Justin, we really appreciate it. We know we got to let you go.
1: Yeah, thank y'all for having me. The basics for soil fertility are going to be the key to, to, to success with that. Um, and again, I appreciate y'all having me on. You know, anybody, please feel free to contact me anytime where you can talk about, you know, anything they want to.
0: Thanks, buddy. Good luck hosting your class. Yeah, thank y'all. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.